preaching of God's Word is Luke chapter 22, from verse 31 through verse 34. Luke 22, from verse 31 through 34. So here then the Word of God, Luke 22, verses 31 through 34. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren, he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Again, we are impressed by how fixed Christ's attention is to the good of his people. Indeed, when we see Him fixed upon the cross, what is that but a fixing of Himself upon that instrument of their everlasting good? And yet, Christ Himself, as incarnate, is truly and fully man. And anticipating the pain and the agony that was about to be experienced, it is worthy of our notice that He is still earnestly considering the good of His people. He's not merely, as it were, saying, I need time now. I need to fortify myself. But notice the idea is focused on the good of those around Him. And so, in context, we've had the outbreak of contention. Remember in verse 24, there was also a strife among them. Which of them should be accounted the greatest? Christ reproved that and corrected that. And then He encouraged them by reminding them that there was indeed glory to come when it is that His kingdom should flourish in glory on the last day. Now it is that He isolates Simon. Simon himself who was named Peter or Rock. And you'll notice that Christ isolates him And yet, he also indicates that there is something applicable to everyone. For you'll notice, he says, Simon, Simon. But then he says, Satan hath desired to have you. Now, the Old English before us is helpful because it represents the Greek well. It's not Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have thee, singular, but you, my disciples, plural. And so he's still addressing as well the disciples. He's isolating Simon, who seems to have been at the head of the contention. He's isolating Simon because Simon would fall, it would seem, more significantly than the others minus Judas. And yet he is testifying that he is laboring for them all. Christ ever has His eyes on the good of His people. And yet you'll also notice that this one is mentioned Satan. A very name which means something. 
And it means adversary. So, this one who is your adversary and indeed bears that name hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. So think of this for a moment because here is the people of God and there are two who are ever looking upon them. There is the adversary who desires their downfall, destruction, disruption, their confusion, their shame, their setting aside unto uselessness and all of those things, their adversary, Satan. And then there is their advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is ever serving, strengthening, protecting, upholding, encouraging. And yet, if you didn't have this passage here, you could have approached Simon and you could have asked him, what's Satan doing right now? And it likely would have been not much of a response. Now, in our day, of course, we have some who are so uh, engulfed with thoughts of Satan and Satanism and angels and demons that they actually take their eyes off of Christ and they make something that's secondary primary. And yet, for the grand majority, even of Christians, there is a relative carelessness to the fact that every one of us is the object of vitriolic hatred by this adversary. We shudder to think, what would happen if we lived in Gaza? And all the bombings are going off. And how concerned we would be even to step onto the streets. All of these things happening. Pick any historical conflict and war and put yourself in the place of bombardment and you would be struck with this sense of, I'm at war. People are fighting against us and bombing and so on. And yet most of us go through our weeks with maybe a little whisper of a thought that Satan might be doing something. That the demonic kingdom of darkness might, might be at work seeking my downfall and destruction. Well, Christ here clarifies to us that indeed Satan is doing this. And is it not striking that when you read through First and Second Peter, the very essence of this, these few verses leap to the fore? So it's Peter, you'll remember, in First Peter 5 that says, you know, to be watchful for your adversary goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It is Peter who testifies to be watchful and to give themselves diligently to the close walk with the Lord. And is it not because not only this passage was spoken to him, but what Christ foretold fell out to him. You'll notice the passage as we just press through it, Christ warns Simon, though acknowledging that this is true of all, Satan had desire to sift so children, you need to think of this perhaps as with wheat. So raw wheat is gathered and it's beaten and it's put in this uh, instrument where there's a lot of shaking and it's trying to separate uh, the worthless part from the kernel. It's shaking it up and it's tumultuous. And here is what Satan desires to do to God's people. To give them no peace, but to give them everlasting confusion 
to make them, as it were, distracted and concerned and in the end unsettled and uh, by that to be unstable in the things of God's kingdom. It was meant to disturb, to disrupt, to separate and ruin. This is what Satan wants to do. And in fact, he has a partial success in that. Because notice, though it is that Peter says, Lord, verse 33, I'm ready to go with thee into prison and to death. That's not faith speaking. This is something that's hard for us. We talk about self-examination and there's implicitly this deep-seated groan. Why do I need to examine myself? I've professed faith. I've been in church. I've done all of these things. Here's the reason. Because we can't distinguish the selfish and proud self-confidence from the lowly and humble abandoning of self-confidence to holding fast unto Christ. That takes spiritual exercise. Peter stands up and he says, listen, I'm ready to die. I've counted the cost. I've got the cross. I'm following after. I'm ready for it all. And Christ says, no, 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 Peter, I tell thee, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt deny me, that thou knowest me. And notice that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me as the subsequent record proves. So Christ foretells Simon's blasphemous denial. And yet, notice the part that we've looked past. There in verse 32, But I, the Lord, have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. So he's gone now from the broad, Satan has desired to sift you all, And he comes to comfort Simon particularly. Who will need that comfort when it is he realizes the degree of vileness that he performs? I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. The word converted here is not a testimony of conversion from condemnation to justification from death to life but restoration from a significant fall that he then would be given unto the serving of his brethren, which, of course, we see takes place. When we look at this passage, we find that it's only, and this is something we need to allow sink into us, it is exclusively, it is only by the mediation of Jesus Christ. There's nothing else that contributes. There's nothing else upon which to rely. It is only by the mediation of Christ on our behalf as our advocate that we are preserved and strengthened unto any spiritual good or usefulness in His kingdom. And so Christ is making this point. What's He saying? He's saying, Simon, you're weak. Satan's strong. Left to yourself and your own ingenuity and your own reliance, you've got nothing. But here's your hope. I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. In other words, though there will be a shaking of it, though there will be a stumbling of sorts, it will not be overthrown. The words fail not can actually be translated with the idea of um, eclipsed. That it will not be totally blacked out. That though there be, as it were, some darkening, it will not be extinguished. When thou art converted, strengthen the brethren. 
Well, consider then this as it would help us as well, realizing that Satan would desire each of us and would that we would be sobered to this very fact by looking at three things. Firstly, the danger to which believers are exposed. Secondly, the weakness with which believers are possessed. And thirdly, the help with which the believer is supported. The danger, the weakness, and the help of the believer. Firstly, then, the danger to which believers are exposed. Now, this is important for us because each of us, whether unbeliever or believer, are weak. But it's particularly believers that need to take notice of this because Satan already has unbelievers in their prison, in his prison. Believers have been, as it were, brought out. If you've read the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, you have a beautiful picture of this by John Bunyan when it is that Christian is going down on the journey and Apollyon, Satan, stands before him and he calls him a traitor for he's left his kingdom. He's left the dark kingdom. He's left the broken and the bondage kingdom. And now he's walking after a new king. What a perfect picture this is that Satan despises losing anything from his kingdom. One has described it as, if it could be said, the only delight that Satan has is in seeing others brought to rebel against the glorious God. And so it is, we see here, Satan doing just this. This is the danger. It's true, you have danger in your heart. And we've been well instructed by others and Lord willing from this pulpit, according to the Bible, that each one of you and I included carry with us that sinful reality of our own corruption. And yet, here is a danger that is outside of you and thus oftentimes outside of your thought and consideration. And it is personal. It's not an evil culture it's not a wayward way. It is an individual, Satan, who stands against you. So here he is called by his name Satan, which means adversary. And reference was made earlier to 1 Peter chapter 5. And you can see how Peter references him himself in verse 8 when he says, Be sober, be vigilant, watchful, because your adversary, the devil... Now, here the word adversary is not the same as the proper name Satan, but it's a word which means the opponent at law. The one who is ever pointing out and accusing. Elsewhere, he's known as the accuser of the brethren. He is fixated upon this one point. We have seen travesties of justice, or rather injustice, when well-paid lawyers are fixated upon the simple fact of gaining money and getting their person off, uh, their client off the hook. And they will often with unrelenting attention focus upon one thing or shift blame to someone else. In fact, all of us have this oftentimes where we become guilty of something and unrelentingly we point out the other's fault. Well, Satan is that constantly toward the people. If you think you have a conscience which is heavy toward you. If you heard the accusations leveled against you by your enemy, you would be paralyzed with fear because 
He's often right. He knows more fully than you do just how vile your sins are. And He stands ever opposing and accusing you. But He's not only this enemy at the bar of justice. Notice as Peter says, He is as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom He may devour. In other words, Satan is not interested in wounding you. He's not interested in merely making your witness a bit you know, complicated and confounded. He's interested in your utter destruction. And this, of course, is possible to members of the church outwardly considered. We don't know. Does Satan understand the difference between elect and reprobate? We don't have reason to suspect that he does. We have reason to suspect as any finite creature, apart from supernatural revelation, that he judges according to outward professions as we do. And so he looks at the professing church and he says, I don't know but that this one may be merely a mere professor and not one who possesses faith. And so what does he do? He roars and seeks to devour. Now, here's our comfort as we'll see, the Lord will preserve His own. And yet, as with Peter, his own can stumble mightily and be the cause of stumbling of many others. Brethren, you and I need to realize that this is not a war of culture or a war of ideals, though there is something true of those things. Satan stands as a personal agent, an angelic being who is himself full of corruption and given solely over to wickedness. And with all of the depths of his hellish vehemence and hatred, he would single you out for your destruction. And whereas we can't say anything that would be parallel to something of pleasure, yet it's the only word that we can come with to testify of what it would bring Him to see you give in to distractions, corruptions, and thus to blaspheme the name of the Lord. This is His desire. And though He is not omnipresent and cannot be everywhere attacking all of the saints at one and the same time, yet we remember that He stands, as the Scriptures say, the God of this world. He stands, it seems, as the ruler of the demonic kingdom and many other demons under His guidance at work among His people. And so, brethren, you and I need to come face to face with this reality. There are those enemies we can see. There are those who would wield guns and knives and other such things, words and ideas. But there's one we can't see and who would stand against you and me. Parents, you need to get this in your mind. He has His mind set on your children. He has His mind set upon their downfall. Husbands, you need to realize He has His mind set on your wife. Wives, the same for your husbands. Children, the same for your parents. That when it is that eruptions of difficulties come, we should realize that Satan is only beginning and seeking with all of the unsettled circumstances to take advantage of our many failures and weaknesses and sins and lead us astray. Now, we have the benefit on Him for two reasons. One, we have, as we'll see, our great Savior. But we also have the record of His ways. And we have the counsel of our God as to how we may resist Him 
and overcome Him. And try as we might, there is no recorded instance whereby Satan is overcome by ignoring Him. And yet the majority of us posture ourselves as if Satan is somewhere doing something but has nothing to do with me or my home or my children or my thoughts or my ways or my culture and so on. Whereas the Scriptures are saying, though he may not be personally, that is one-to-one with us and against us, his kingdom is strategically operating to seek out the destruction of God's people. At least they're stumbling. At least they're downfall. What does this mean practically? Practically it means this. When you think it's just a matter about you and your wife, and the argument's just there, and you know, we're just going to have it out and then be done, you need to realize that there are demonic influences that would lead you into wicked sin. When you're sitting in front of the computer and you think, this is just me and the computer, you know, I'll get through it, you need to realize that Satan's purpose is to lead you unto your destruction. You need to realize that when you're with your coworkers and you sort of let your profanity slip and you say, well, it's just I'm here in context and so on, you need to realize that it's there that Satan will lead you into destruction and profane the name of God and solidify if he cannot shake you unto your own destruction, but use you as the instrument of the continued bondage of those around you. Satan's goal is the utter upheaval and destruction of souls. And when you and I think, well, it's just my sin and so on, it's that person's sin, you are blinded to the fact that there is a real and demonic kingdom that is at work among the children of men. Now, we don't get carried away as some do, and yet we must be carried away according to the Scriptures. The Scriptures teach us that there is this enemy, this adversary, Satan, who with hatred that you and I cannot fathom, despises both God and those who bear His name. And if you start to figure this out and think about it, you will be struck with a shuddering thought, this is against me. This is against my home. This is against my children. This is against my brethren. This is against my wife. This is against my husband. This is against my church. This is against the kingdom of God. And whereas we do not belittle the bombings and the war that takes place throughout the world in different places, that is but a whisper of the tactics of Satan. Right now there's the discussion about all the tunnels in Gaza and all the ways that Hamas can get around undetected from the best optics that modern technology can set forth. And yet all of this is but a slight whisper to Satan's tactics. One says he's had 6,000 years plus perfecting his craft. And brethren, he would wield that perfection against you. Some have mentioned the great horror in war when it is that they are taken captive and they notice perhaps a laser beam upon them. They're saying, don't move. They realize what the laser beam means. If they move, that's where the bullet's going. 
Brethren, you need to realize this. Satan has, as it were, his optics, his crosshairs, his laser upon you. And he's not saying don't move. He's saying you better move. He uses and wields all of his tactics of fear, self-preservation, self-aggrandizement, pleasure, indulgence, comfort, family, friends, food, all of these things. And he's seeking to push you into the denial of the Lord God. This is exactly what comes to pass with Peter. Satan stands against you. Well, this is made all the worse because secondly, of the weakness with which believers are possessed. Paul would give clear testimony, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Notice Peter's response, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. That was Peter's legitimate, sincere persuasion of himself. I'm ready to go. And to some extent, you see something of that at the garden when Judas and the band come and they seek to arrest Christ. And Peter unleashes a sword and strikes against Malchus' servant and strikes off his ear. There's something there. And yet it's all motivated by Peter's own inward strength and ability. And though that can move him to some activity, it cannot cause him to resist temptation. Isn't it interesting that he's ready to take up a sword, which he knows, for instance, that this group of soldiers which have seen war, he had no chance of overtaking. He was ready to thrash through to the end. And yet, hours later, he would fall at the feet of a servant girl who said, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? And he says, no. And he does it two more times. What's the point? Well, here is the vanity of self-confidence. The vanity of self-reliance. If we could say this clearly, this is the vanity of the world's strength. Because the world is always testifying, you take care of you. You have within yourself the strength. Look within. Trust your heart. Trust your strength. In the day of trial, you'll be okay. You know, follow yourself. Follow your own leading. Follow your own abilities. And the Scriptures are resoundingly clear with this. With all of the volume that can be done, do not trust anything about yourself. Do not in the least look within. Do not in the least follow your heart. Do not in the least follow your own persuasion because the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked who can know it. Where in the Scriptures it mentions strength, it is always associated with the Lord. What should Peter have done? Well, it's impossible to know with exacting detail, but the essence should have been falling at the feet of his Savior and saying, pardon that there is such seed of sin in me, such corruption within me, and preserve me by your grace. This is the right response to warning. So when we read later on, be sober and vigilant, it's interesting, Peter is regular in pointing out that we're to do so in the Lord. 
that our watchfulness is in the Lord. It's of the Lord. Our strength is from Him. Our whole hope of overcoming Satan has nothing to do with us. And it has everything to do with our fleeing unto Christ, leaning upon Him, and resting upon His work. Brethren, it is natural for a group of people who are in union with one another to look at their opponents, whether on the playing field, or look at their opponents in a war and say, we've got this, we're ready to die for it, we'll take it to the end, what have you. And there's something natural about that for Christians to say, we'll take care of it. And yet, how many get to that moment of testing only to capitulate and to compromise and in the end to recuse themselves from following the Lord Jesus Christ? What changed? Well, frankly, nothing. Because they trusted in themselves and they were trusting in a source which has no strength. And so when the trial comes... Now they're exposed to the fact that they are weak. The vain self-confidence and pride will end in the self-destructive reliance upon oneself. So you think of Paul, be strong in the Lord. Not be strong in your own resolution. Not be strong in your own feelings and thoughts. But be strong rather in the Lord. What happens with Peter, is that he denies that he knows Christ. Notice the language in verse 34. He says, The cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Think of that for a moment. He doesn't say that you will thrice deny that you are my believing person even. That's included. But he's going to the extreme. He's saying, I don't even know Jesus Christ. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? No, I'm not his disciple. Well, that would have been wicked. But he goes further than that. He says, I don't even know him. I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes to the utmost, as it were, of refusing Christ by saying he doesn't even know Jesus Christ. In other words, self-confidence will in the end, if relied upon, display the utmost of cowardice in the following of Christ. And brethren, here is the news for you and for me. What is true here of Simon is true of each of us. That Each of us have this tendency to rely upon ourselves. We've gotten things in order. We've gotten it together. We can now go forward. Whereas the Scriptures are full of saying that way ends in the refusal, the rejection of the Lord God. And in the end, it would lead us to go out not having truly been of the people of God. This weakness is in each of us. Well, then where is our hope? This is by far and away the most forceful point of Christ's message. Thirdly, the help with which the believer is supported. You can see something. Christ is emphasizing the attacks of the enemy and the weakness of Peter to point out where the true hope and help is found. In one way, God, Christ is saying, listen, you're exposed to the worst of enemies. Going to Mexico on occasion, 
will necessarily cause you to think about, you know, what happens if the, the cartel got involved? And you hear about the butchery that takes place. And you say, that would be difficult. Some of you have read in the Inquisition the various instruments of torture that were invented and implemented. And you would say, I don't know how anyone could ever bear up under that. And you're right. What wickedness, what utter villainy devised such tortuous ways, such painful and excruciating difficulties. Well, whatever it was, it is child's play compared to the enemy that desires your downfall. Because he would bring you into hell by keeping you from Jesus Christ, by causing you to deny and flee from Christ. And then, there's that, our enemy, and then we look within our own resources, we take inventory of our thoughts, of our strength, of our courage, and so on, and we relativize it according to other men, and we say, well, I might be better than that, I'm not that person, but I'm not down there. And yet we need to realize, wherever our courage is on the scale of humankind, it is cowardice in the face of Satan's attacks. And wherever our strength is on the scale of mankind, it is weakness compared to Satan's attacks. So where then is our help? Well, what Christ is getting at is this. It's not here and it's not here. Therefore, it's only here. Where is it? He says, verse 32, but I have prayed for thee. The hope is in Christ our advocate. So notice, Satan is the accuser, the adversary. He's seeking to uh, tear down and destroy the saints. What is Christ doing? He's serving, praying for the saints. He's working out what He's already said. He says, if you're going to be great in My kingdom, you have to be as the servant. What is Christ perpetually doing? And do you realize this? Even as He has entered upon His exaltation, He continues to pray for His people. Every single encouragement of spiritual victory you've had is only because Christ has sought it for you. Every growth in conformity of thought and doctrine to the Word of God is only because Christ has provided it to you. Every victory over temptation is only because Christ has afforded it to you. Every conquering of Satan's ways is only because of Jesus Christ. And yet, look more closely at the text. It's not here that Christ is saying, you will go unscathed against Satan. But when thou art converted, this word is a broad word, and as noted earlier, it doesn't refer here to Peter being unconverted as a sinner dead in his sins, to afterwards being converted, but it's anticipating his stumbling, which is mentioned later, right? You shall thrice deny that thou knowest me. This is going to happen. You'll be, as it were, outwardly in the camp of Christ's deniers. But I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you are converted, when you're turned back, when you're brought again to profess the truth and walk according to it, Notice, this is what Christ is providing and seeking for Peter. That when he stumbles, he will be restored. This is something for you and for me to glory in. 
When we look back at our lives and we can think with clear detail, that's where I stumbled. Why is it that I was not cast off as so many others have been cast off? We don't just say, well, I was elect and so on and all of that. That's true. We don't just say, well, you know, my faith was real. That's true. But the only reason any of that is true is because of Christ and His work. And the only reason your faith didn't fail is because Christ was upholding it. The only reason that you were among the elect is because God chose you by grace. The point is, it's not impersonal. It is rather the personal outworking of the personal God for your personal saving welfare. When you look back at your life and you say, there was when I stumbled and fell. I read David's fall. I read through Psalm 51. And my own details come to life. And I say, it's there. It's there that I shamed the name of God. It's there that I brought uh, all manner of of reproach upon the cause of God's name. It's there that God, I see most clearly, would have been most just to say, that's it, you're done, go and live your life in the utter demise of sin. But He didn't do that. I can look back and say, as grievous as that was, as horror-filled it still makes me to think of what I did, yet I see that He restored me. Why is that so? How was it that I was restored? It's because our Advocate did not give us over, but prayed for us that our faith would not utterly fail. Shaken, yes. Weakened, most certainly. But extinguished, no. Why? Not because of anything in yourself. Not because of any superiority of knowledge. Not because of the books you read. Not because of the intelligence you have. Not because of the experience you've been exposed to. None of that is the actual cause, though they may be instruments used. The reason that your faith did not fail is because Christ personally sought the Father's blessing and said, Father, sustain them. And we can look back and say, there's where I failed there's where Christ restored me. There's where I would have turned aside, but there's where the Good Shepherd sought me out and brought me back again. There's where I would have turned unto my own destruction and run headstrong into all manner of wickedness to my own damnation, but Christ would not let it be so. He sought my restoration. It is because of Christ's intervention that you and I have ever been restored. Brethren, when we hear Christ is enthroned on a throne of grace and He ever lives to make intercession for the saints as we read in Hebrews chapter 7, we can get lost in the grand thought that is and say He's praying for everyone. And it's true. He's praying for His people of every tribe, of every tongue, of every people. He's praying for His people, seeking their good and so on. But we need to become personal in this and say, that means as I have been brought to trust in Christ, He's praying for me. Christ is remembering me upon the throne of grace. Christ remembers me in my stumbling, in my failures, in my wickedness. 
None of us would have come to Peter, would we? And said, Peter, it's okay. Everyone sins. It's okay. Get back on it. You know, we would have been struck with abhorrence to have witnessed what Peter did. And yet think of our counsel many times to other people when they sin. It's okay. Everyone sins. Not a big deal. And what we actually do in doing that is we lessen the significance of how it is that person is restored. It's not natural. It's not a common feature of humanity to be restored back to following Christ. It is a supernatural grace of intervention by the Lord Jesus Christ bringing that one. And so our counsel needs to be to people. Your sin is despicable in God's sight. You trust it in yourself. How abhorrent that is. Your only hope is in this great Savior. See, so many times we're uncomfortable by calling sin out. Someone comes to us, they confess sin, and we say, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. A lot of people have done that too. And, you know, girls have done this, boys have done this, men have done that, women have done that, generations have done that. Don't worry about it, not that big of a deal, you'll be okay. And implicitly we are denying the wonder of this passage. This doesn't mean we upbraid people and we cause them, as it were, to be ripped across sandpaper to feel all the abrasive reality of their sin, but it does mean that we confirm your hope and your only hope is in the Mediator, Jesus Christ. Your only hope of being restored is through the mediation of Jesus Christ. And what's amazing about this is that's the only thing that ministers actual encouragement. Because if my only hope is in being common like other men and having the same resources that other men have, I know where I'm going to end up. I'm going to end up tripping over myself this way, that way, again and again, over and over. But if my hope of peace and uh, comfort is in the perfect mediation of Christ, I now am exposed to the bedrock of comfort and salvation. Peter isn't told... Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Others have denied me and they're okay. He's not told, Peter, you're going to deny me three times, but you're not going to be like Judas. He says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times, but I've prayed for you. The hope of the Christian who stumbles, who goes into sin, is not, well, people have done that before him. It's that Christ is on a throne of grace who intercedes for them. And so they have to be directed to Christ. Isn't that what Christ is saying? Simon, Satan's going to do this against you. Simon, you're going to do this against me. But Simon, I'm standing here advocating for you. And when you are converted, isn't it a beautiful expression? Not if, not if it happens, not if by happenstance it comes to pass, but rather when. I know you're going to fall. I know you're going to stumble. But because I've interceded for you, because this will be brought again, when you are turned back, what does he say? He says, strengthen thy brethren. You're not strengthened unto yourself. 
You're strengthened unto service. And you see the revolution that's taking place in Christ's testimony to Peter. Peter, you're so contending for yourself. You were involved in this eruption of contention. Who's going to be greatest? And now you're going to sit here and tell me how good you are and strong you are and how willing you are to suffer for me. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to be brought down by your own reliance upon yourself. But then it is, by my gracious ordering, you're going to discover that your only hope is in me. And when that happens, then you'll be ready to serve and strengthen others. And so you can go, and I encourage you even today to take glances, if not read through the whole of those two epistles, which really won't take long, First and Second Peter, and you'll see these themes over and over again where Peter is regularly saying, here are the trials, here are the difficulties, here is the shaking, the sifting of Satan, which tries your faith, which is more precious than of gold. And he fixes our attention upon Jesus Christ, whom though we see Him not yet, we love. And he opens our attention to Christ's ministry. And he calls us then to diligent watchfulness and service to others. All things he learned in the difficult reality of having failed by relying on himself and yet having been restored by the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, brethren, as we close, it is a sobering sadness that grips us when we realize how foolish we can be to say, I've been at it for 10 years, 20 years. Some could say, I've been at it for 40 years. I've got it figured out. I know the disciplines. I know the activities. I've got my routines. I've got all this down. I've got good books. I listen to good sermons. I go to church regularly. I'm doing all these things. And suddenly what creeps in is this thought. Trial's going to come. I'll be okay because I've got all the things in order. And yet what Christ is having us discover is this. The only way that you or I should stand or the only way that we should be restored if we were to fall is solely the Lord Jesus Christ. And so where does this leave us? Well, it leaves us to be sobered to the wicked ways of Satan. To take to consideration Peter's statement, be sober, be vigilant. Wonderful book that if you've not read should be added to your book list as precious remedies against Satan's devices. And you'll see how clearly, how subtly, how diligently Satan is seeking in a variety of ways to disrupt and disturb. We need to be aware of his ways so that we might be made wise unto those. But not just that we can wax eloquent and say, here's a way that Satan works, here's another way that Satan works, and there's another way that Satan works. But so that we can be watchful And with diligent exercise of faith, not leaning upon ourselves, but casting ourselves upon Christ, may by Him overcome. This is the victory. Even our faith. Why is it that Peter had faith that didn't fail? Because Christ prayed and preserved it. So where should we go? Oh Christ, if You leave me to Myself, My faith will fail. So I beseech you as my Savior, as that good and gracious One, sustain faith in me. Strengthen faith in me. I will make use of the means of grace. And yet I'm looking through them to you to fill and strengthen that faith. And yet, brethren, here's a word of guidance 
for any and all who have stumbled, who have fallen by their own self-reliance, their casual indifference to the warnings of Christ, and have discovered sin, your hope and my hope together is by looking again to this our Advocate. So Hebrews tells us elsewhere that we have a great and high priest who has passed into the heavens, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's seated on a throne of grace to which we are to come. The word in our English is boldly, but in the Greek it's with many words, with many petitions, that we may find grace to help in time of need. So though our adversary stands against us, we are to, as it were, make use of Satan that way to cause us to flee to Christ. Several have noted this in books and sermons that for the Lord's children, the adversary at the bar is mightier than they, but he's never won a case because their advocate is mightier than he, and he's always won. And so we're driven to our advocate not to advocate our works, but to advocate Himself as our Savior, as our great and high priest, the mediator between God and man who reconciles us and through whom all the blessings of God come to us. And so it is if we have fallen, or if it is that God should permit our fall in the future, here is the need that we would take ourselves to our Advocate, confess our own foolishness and sin, and beseech Him for His promised grace that we then in humility may rely upon Him and serve His people to His glory. Would you stand with me for prayer?